It's Tim Albright with AV Nation looking at the history uh, and the contribution of the Black experience in AV for uh, Black History Month. With me today is Willie Franklin from Otterbein University. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. It's great to be here. Well, thank you. And you and I got connected through a, a mutual friend. Uh, this has been a fascinating experience for me just talking with other other folks. Um, so Otterbein University and, and, and kind of where you sit in that, um, you're the senior technology specialist for them. And for really quickly, kind of give folks an overarching idea or overarching view of where you sit in the AV community or the AV industry. Um, I guess I would best describe my role as mid-management, particularly in the university or higher ed setting. And, And that's to say that the hands are deeply ingrained in the day-to-day work at the ground level, but they're also engaged in the management of that technology infrastructure, the budgeting approaches, the strategic planning, and even training uh, some of our users, new hires, and God's honest truth, even training faculty because there and lies the bread and butter. You, you know, we can develop some very sophisticated systems in our realm of technology. However, if we can't train the end user and really develop a community of effective technology users, you know, I personally feel that we miss the mark. It doesn't matter how beautiful it is, if it's not functional, if it's not easy to interpret if there are not measurable outcomes of using the instructional technology within this realm, I, I feel truly that my unit misses the mark. Talk about that for a second, because, I, and, and I, I'm always fascinated to talk to other tech managers. That is my history. That is my background. That's how I got into AV. So I always love kind of chatting with, with folks. Talk about that educating the, the instructor, teaching the teacher, as it were, when it comes to that technology uh, factor, because there are a number that you, you've got you, you've got the tenured professor who has been there for 40 years and they come in, you know, probably not with their overhead projector slides anymore, but certainly with older technology, mm-hmm. getting them over the hump of the next technology, right? Or the next technology. And depending on their generation, sometimes they just get tired of, of trying to get over that next technology hump. And they're like, this is where I'm stopping, right? So talk for a second about, you know, leading them and instructing the, you know, instructing the instructor on technology. Okay, so the uh, and that's a very good question. So thank you. Uh, the the pushback is real. You know, for for yeah. those who have experienced that pushback when people are entrenched and just do not want to move from their space of comfort, and um, you know, and I can say that from a standpoint of just looking at the removal of VHS decks this past year from our campus and what that meant this, this year. Past year, so so twenty twenty. Yes. Holy yes. cow. Forget COVID. How about VHS? But really, it, it takes a degree of emotional intelligence. And, and that's the important piece of it. You know, you really have to meet people where they're at. Yeah. Um, I certainly believe in pulling them along instead of pushing them forward. Uh, it does take a little bit of work. Uh, you don't necessarily have to do it in baby steps. And it's important to listen to understand, not just listen to respond. Because I've found that in working with our faculty, it's not so much their hesitancy to embrace the new technology. It can often be their perceived notion of the complexity of the technology. So they really don't need to know or desire in most cases to know the granular details right, of how it works. They just need to know that it works and why it works. 
So when I talk about emotional intelligence and listening to understand, it's really taking the time to understand what they desire to accomplish with the use of the technology. You know, how are they using it in their class? How are the students interacting with it? There are jewels that come about during those just everyday hallway conversations, you know, mm. where a faculty member would share one example is a case where a faculty member shared their embarrassment and navigating websites and finding what they wanted to display to their students while everything was up on screen. So imagine their delight of sharing a simple tip of hitting freeze on that video projector. So now whatever is projected, whether it's a PowerPoint slide, whatever, it's now frozen. You can now go open, uh, log in with your credentials on the web page that you want to bring up, make certain that you're ready to present, unfreeze, and voila. It's like magic. I mean, this light bulb goes off. Yeah. But what it does, it gives that opportunity for that faculty member to kind of step off the stage, right? Remove themselves from the public eye during that presentation um, of content. You know, they're expected to be experts in their field. And in a large sense, they're expected to be experts with the use of instructional technology. And, and that's really not the case. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's not a slight on faculty. It's certainly not a slight on students. The industry moves at the pace of lightning as far as development. And we're always challenged to keep up with it and basically asking what is technology demanding of us? Uh, so it's a long-winded answer with regards to the emotional intelligence of understanding the end user, the importance of bringing people along sometimes at their pace and letting them know that, you know, failure is an event, that it's not a person. So if you have a mishap in the classroom, it's not an end all. It's just an incident. And you learn from it and you go forward. That is actually a really, really well, a really, really good answer to that because not a lot of people take the emotional intelligence part of that job, right? Um, and it, it's fascinating to, to hear you talk about, you know, really kind of listening to the instructors, right? And, and having those, those moments where you can unobtrusively kind of, you know, slightly steer them in, in the, the, the freeze is a, is a perfect example of that where, you know what, it's, it's not, you know, you're, it's not a talking down to, it's not anything like that. It's just, okay, j just so you're aware you have this option. You know, that's actually uh, incredible. Um, let's talk for a second about, about your experience and, and how you got into AV. I'm always fascinated by these stories because as many people as are in the industry, there are this, the, that many stories of how we all kind of landed in AV. So, so how did you, Willie, get into, to, into AV? Well, you know, I, I'm certain those in the medical field or field of science would challenge what I'm about to say, but I believed it to be true. I'm genetically dispositioned to be in technology. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, seriously, though, uh, I was the child who certainly appreciated those wonderful toys that mom and dad bought for me. But I was also the child that tore apart any and every toy that was handed to me because I needed, I needed, I needed, I needed to know how it worked, you know? So it was important just to kind of crack it open. And in my youth, tools were uh, unknown to me. Uh, so truly it was about brute force to crack it open, which Tim, I have to say that also included my sister's toys as well. I have five sisters. So oh, wow. I had a plethora of things to deconstruct, 
all of that aside, it really points back to a curious mind of wanting to understand how the world worked. Um, and that really led me into experimentation with about anything that I could peer into. I quickly became then fascinated with anything that had to do with the world of electronics or electricity and mechanics. From there, it was just really a, a hobby uh, that developed. That hobby was fueled by a passion that led me to choose uh, a college experience, focus on technology, getting a degree as an electronics technician, uh, then getting an associate's certificate on top of that, uh, looking at uh, a little deeper into electronic technology, and then migrating to combine that with a, a bachelor's at business organizational communication. From there, just continue to expand uh, sound system design and deployment uh, to creating a, a DJ business that, you know, with COVID certainly has struggled, but oh, keeps yeah. me entertained and delighted. There's still an aspect of electronics uh, associated with that when one thinks about sound processing gear, lighting control and things of that nature. So the passion for the, the world of technology has always been there from the very start. Um, the greatest challenge was figuring out what to do with it. You know, you could be a hobbyist or you can create a career. And I certainly want to create a career out of it while maintaining a fun hobby on the side. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, nothing wrong with enjoying what you do. Um, let's talk about the, 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 the career part. And uh, one of the aspects of, of this um, of, of these interviews that we're doing is talking about not just your experience in, in the AV industry, but quite frankly, the, the, your experience as a black individual in the AV industry. Um, one of the things that, that I will continually say this, this month is that I, I understand where I, I am, right? So I'm learning in, in this process. So what obstacles have you faced uh, over the course of your career you know, because of, of, of your race, because of, of where you set and, and because being a black individual in the AV industry? Oh, th thank you for that question. Um, the obstacles, though constant, uh, don't hold me back. Uh, they don't hold me back because it's important to always uh, push forward. You know, if there's anything that we're passionate about, we, we, we seek out those opportunities of personal and professional growth, bottom line. The challenges are, are constant, truly from a standpoint that... Uh, whether I'm interacting with a student group, whether I'm in a corporate setting at a meeting, whether I'm walking down the hallway uh, en route to an event, those constant challenges that I truly believe are wrapped around uh, my ethnicity will manifest in ways of a faculty member, a person that I, I know who will kind of jokingly, and I put that in quotation marks, say, hey, what are you doing with that? Are you stealing that? And I, you know, and you can't help but look at that person and ask, you know, what's behind that question, particularly since we work for the same higher ed environment and you know concisely what my job is, why would you ask that question? Or you're walking into a uh, classroom setting and a professor has no idea who you are, that's a commonality. But to see that person respond by backing up away from you as you're responding to a call for tech support or you're joining a group for a uh, conference in that room, um, 
I can't help but use my filter of, I think some of, some of the slides, some of the digs that have occurred over time that have been attached to race, yeah. right? So that's the immediate response. You know, it, it's, it's crossing the street and have someone yell a racial slur as they drive by. It's walking across campus and passing or prior to passing a young white student, seeing her look at you, grab her purse, put it on the other side of her shoulder and clutch it tightly against her and actually step off the sidewalk. And how how do you ignore things like that? You know, it's walking through a parking lot and uh, kind of seeing a, a person sitting in their vehicle in the parking lot who makes eye contact with you. And then you hear the locks on the vehicle engage, you know. It's having a white colleague uh, who unfortunately is locked out of their office. And as you're walking by, asked you, hey, can you help me get in my office? You know how to open this door lock, don't you? Why would I have that knowledge? (laughs) It's being at our help desk, mentoring students and having a, uh, a white female professor come in needing tech support. Uh, password reset. And of course, our students don't know every single faculty member, so they ask for identification. Uh, She realizes she doesn't have her purse. I know her. She knows me. I vet her, but the student is obligated to follow protocol. So I applaud them for that. So they, again, ask, I need to see some credentials because what they really needed was her employee number to enter in. And she didn't know that. So she turns to me and she asks, would you mind running to my office and grabbing my purse? You know, her office is in the building. And of course, the student mouth opens. One of our help desk managers overhears this. She becomes so livid that she has to step away, crying, going down the hallway. Um, you know, so I counseled her afterwards. I certainly had a conversation with the faculty member as well as our, our students. It's, it's those types of interactions or exchanges or experiences that you have to not so much tune out, but be aware and then make a conscious decision of what you're going to do with that debris. Yeah. And do you let it affect your work day? Do you let it affect your temperament going through the day, through the week, through the month? Do you let it cripple your interactions and meetings by perhaps not speaking up by perhaps not taking a project that's difficult that you're now going to lead and fear criticism. Um, So I never allow those things to impact my choices going forward as far as leadership of speaking out, engaging in difficult situations, because I truly feel um, I, Willie Franklin, have something to offer to this world uh, that goes well beyond uh, any negative statements, interactions, uh, any implicit bias that anyone might have uh, of me. So uh, again, that's a long-winded answer that speaks to some of the- It's a fascinating answer though, yeah. Um, I'm going to ask a question and, and, and understand the, the question, um, at least I hope our listeners do. And, and this is in talking with, with um, you know, a couple of folks that kind of helped us craft these questions. 
is not necessarily how you overcame them, but why you overcame some of those obstacles. And the, the, the implicit um, part of that question is that you have a choice, right, um, to overcome those obstacles or to go a different direction, right? To, to say, you know what, I don't, I don't need a faculty member asking me to go get their purse, right? I, I don't need this in my life. I, I, you know, there are other struggles that we, can, that we can choose to overcome. Why did you choose to overcome the struggles and the obstacles and, and the, the implicit bias? You know, and that is a, a question I think I can best answer from the perspective of parenting, right? Uh, thinking about growing up in the South, thinking concretely about things that were discussed at the dinner table, interactions with mom and dad and some of the challenges. Uh, and, and by the South, I uh, reference to the beautiful state of Georgia. Uh, so okay. that's home for me. Uh, so that kind of set the rules of engagement of who we are as individuals. And it also strongly established a sense of personal pride and confidence. The other part of that is a sense of accountability um, of being responsible to a larger population of people. You know, I was brought on board by individuals who believed that I had something to offer to the university, the faculty, the students, and indeed my peers here in the department. So I have those folks that I'm always accountable to in my actions, to mentor them, to learn from them, to grow with them. So if I allow those negative in experiences to uh, somehow cripple my ab ability to go forward, to, to continue to uh, mentor, to be that go-to uh, colleague on campus, it, it serves none of us, right? Uh, and it certainly doesn't serve my ideology of who I am and, and what I can always bring to the equation. And I think it certainly dishonors the whole notion of what my parents and others had experienced that was far more egregious, in my opinion, than what I've experienced. So the why for me is definitely seated in, I, I must, I guess the easiest way to answer is I must, I, I can't fathom any other way of living than to live a positive, productive life. God, that, that is a wonderful and beautiful way to end it. Willie Franklin, thank you so much, sir. Uh, Willie Franklin from Otterbein, uh, Otterbein University. Uh, I know he said that I can say it any way I want, but I prefer to do it the way that, that folks say. So Otterbein University uh, in Ohio. Thank you so much, sir, for your time. Outstanding, Tim. Thank you for this opportunity. If you ever are in the Ohio area, definitely stop in and visit us here at Otterbein University, Westerville, Ohio, home of Temperance Row. We'll talk about that at different times. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> All right, Willie, thank you so much. Uh, for us, for Aviation, go by our website, aviation.tv. That's aviation.tv. You'll find this program as well as our two weekly programs, AV Week that looks at the commercial side of the AV industry and Resi Week looks at the residential side. All that and more at aviation.tv. That's aviation.tv. Mm -hmm.